Yeah, right. we'll just do that again. Hi everybody, I'm Wendy Murdoch and this is Webinars with Wendy. I've been doing a series of webinars that started during the pandemic and we're just gonna keep right on rolling because you, my audience, are the ones who have given me the feedback that you want me to keep going. Um, I have great guests lined up in the future, but today I have Sarah Schlotti and she is here to talk to us about really interesting stuff in terms of how our nervous system works. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Wendy, it's lovely to be here. So Sarah, tell us a little bit about you. I, I met you at Guelph in 2019 at the International Society for Equitation Science, ISES, um, meeting. And you had a poster session there. And to me, that was the most important uh, conversation of the entire meeting because you brought in the neuroscience of what's going on with horses as opposed to simply behavior modification. And to me, I'm a science nerd. I have a master's degree and to me, the, the nervous system is where it's at. So, so tell us how you got to this point. Gosh, uh, so my background is perhaps a little untraditional in terms of the horse world. So I'm a registered psychotherapist uh, in the province of Ontario, uh, currently living uh, in a different province at the moment. Uh, and I uh, want to just acknowledge that I'm on the unceded territory of the Tsilkotin First Nations community uh, that I was invited to move here for. Um, so I just wanted to acknowledge that they have been the caretakers of this land long before any of us arrived. So uh, I recognize um, my presence here. Um, and uh, so, but originally I was a registered psychotherapist uh, and uh, got into the world of horses. Gosh, I was really horsey as a teen, uh, had a best friend who was into horses, you know, and then kind of moved away from it a little bit. And then as an, as an adult, I got really interested in the field of uh, animal assisted interventions, uh, anything where animals and nature were brought in to support human development. Uh, growth, learning, healing, etc. Um, and uh, for a long time, I had a website called The Natural Connection. This was back in 08. Uh, and so from about 2008 to 2012, I had uh, what was at the time the largest online directory for uh, anything that was animal and nature related services, um, courses, trainings, books, people's locations, services, you name it, it was on there. And it was an international site. Uh, and I eventually took it down because it was just a lot of upkeep and I couldn't do it by myself. Um, but that interest in the um, human animal bond led me into getting involved with my uh, rescue dog at the time with a therapy dog program. And then that sort of morphed into learning about equine assisted interventions with horses. Uh, and then that prompted me to move into around the same time. Uh, get training in something called somatic experiencing. So somatic experiencing is a body-based approach for resolving trauma in the nervous system uh, that was developed by Peter Levine uh, and, but who he himself drew his knowledge from a number of indigenous tribes in South America. And so there's a lot of appropriation uh, within the trauma recovery world, of course, but I like to acknowledge that as well. And so does Peter in his books. He's quite vocal about where he gets his information from. Um, and the uh, interesting thing for me was discovering that uh, some of these more modern trauma approaches for humans are based on um, ethology, which is the study of mammals in optimal circumstances or their natural habitats, and including humans. And that somatic experiencing looks a lot at uh, the effect of what uh, he calls captivity conditions, right? So we live... 
although we're, we're human, technically we live in a modern society where we're discouraged from being connected with our bodies and we're discouraged from understanding what happens in the body. And so, you know, any kind of um, responses that we have that are actually biologically based, we tend to like shame them or shut them down, you know? And so he talks about humans living in a social cage versus animals in captivity living in sort of, you know, animal cages where our natural responses are not able to move through our bodies. And so a lot of us, both human and non-human walk around with a lot of unresolved trauma and stress in our bodies because we aren't allowed or permitted to move through it or let it go or allow it to come, come find expression. Um, and so somatic experiencing among a, a number of different trauma therapies that I'm trained in, um, I really appreciate because of the cross species applicability. Uh, and how it's like, oh, it's not just, you know, it's not just humans that, that experience this, it's also other animals. Um, and Peter is fond of saying that animals in the wild don't experience trauma. I'll, I'll preface that by saying they do, <laughs> you know, animals in the wild can and do experience trauma. We see, you know, elephants that, um, who have watched their family members be decimated by poachers who then go on rampages and sprees, you know, of, of, you know, aggression and so on towards other animals and human villages and so on. So, so there are obviously animals in the wild that do experience trauma. Usually it's at the hands of humans, but Peter's point is interesting, which is that under optimal conditions, which again is the study of ethology, uh, under natural optimal conditions, usually animals are able to move through their responses and live to see another day. Um, you know, in captivity, we keep all this stuff sort of tied up inside of us. We're not allowed to express anger or rage or have a natural fight response because we're going to get arrested. You know, <laughs> like there's all these things that block us from these natural responses that want to move through that. There's no life police in the wild that tell that, you know, gazelle, oh, you're not allowed to show aggression. You know, like, you, you know, there's no, there is no such thing. You just, you move through your response and you survive another day. There, there's no sanction against these things. And so in the wild, what we're more likely to see is animals that move through their trauma responses because they're able to pass through um, freeze, come through the freeze response, come out the other side and discharge that through their nervous systems and then find balance again. And a lot of captivity based animals, ourselves included, don't get a chance to do that for various reasons, you know, and so that training in that model and then other models sort of subsequently really got me thinking about what is going on with the horse human relationship? What is going on with horses? Um, I'm not a horse trainer. That's not my background. Like I'm coming into this world really as a, as a neuropsychologically inclined psychotherapist who happens to really nerd out about ethology and go, why are we not applying this to other animals? Especially, and this was the crux for me is that I was looking at all this and going, okay, so we're taking animal models to inform human trauma therapies, but why are we not taking that to then inform how we treat the animals? Like, you know, it, it seems to be one directional to benefit us, but why are we not bringing it back around, you know? And people will be like, well, that's anthropomorphization. Like, well, you can't have it both ways then. Like you can't, like you can't use it in one way to justify what we're doing for humans, but then not actually like come back around and use it with the animals themselves that it was based on. Like, it seems like a disconnect for me. Um, and so that's really what's motivated a lot of my writing and my, my, uh, well, and, and I think there's a difference between anthropomorphizing, that's a hard word, um, yeah. <laughs> and recognizing this. So I'm always looking at the similarities between horses and people. And, you know, I always tell yeah. my students, we both have a brainstem, we both have a cerebellum, we both have a motor cortex, we have right. more frontal lobe. 
Um, so we can make up stories. Like I always say, you know, like we dreamt of Star Trek and now we have communicators. Um, horses don't create um, fantasies, right? Right, um, right. And in the way the brain works, to me, that's a big separator. But we have all the other things the horses have, and yet we deny them. So I'm actually a Feldenkrais practitioner. And so yes, lovely. body-mind thing is something that I've lived for many, many years. Um, um, so yes, there's parts of the brain that are different the way a horse sees the world, but there's so many similarities in the way the neurological processes work. And I think that that's where we get confused between, um, cause I had Janet Jones, who's a lovely person and she's horse brain, human brain and showing that how the eyes are different and the sensory systems are different. And yes, they are. But then we have to come back to the neurology and say, well, we both have a brainstem. We both have a cerebellum. So, and it, so it's both. It, it well, it is, and it's. I think one often gets lost in service of the other, and that's where people try to err on the side of, well, we don't want to anthropomorphize because that's a capital sin for some reason. And I go, but in doing so, are we denying experiences that the horses are actually having to justify our own mistreatment of them, or to justify our own ongoing exploitation, or what have you? You know, and it's a there's a dissonance there. You know, we we want to think that we're doing right by our animals, but when presented with some information, it can feel uncomfortable. So it's easy to dis discount it as, well, that's anthropomorphizing because I don't like feeling the discomfort of realizing that maybe I'm doing something that might be harmful. Um, and so it gets to be a little bit, uh, a little bit messy. And I, I wrote about that in a blog post a few years ago about can horses consent, um, you know, around this sort of double, double speak that, um, Mark Beckoff speaks about in a lot of his writings around, uh, you know, how we will, um, we have no hesitation claiming or claiming, um, what's the word responsibility when an animal is happy, but you can't ever say the animal's in distress or not, or traumatized because that would be anthropomorphizing, but it's okay to say that the animal's doing okay. Right. And so there's this, this, this sort of like, you can't have it both ways problem. Right. Um, yeah. So it, it's, um, so that's sort of what kind of led me into this was going, well, this seems to be a bit of a disconnect. Like, why are we using all these animal models to create these really cool human trauma therapies, but then we're not like the translation isn't coming back around. So that's where I was like, well, maybe that'll just be what I write about and point out to people. <laughs> it seems to have kind of mushroomed from there. So, so when did you start thinking about the model for horses? Uh, boy, uh, I would say, I think it started to congeal in my awareness around 2016, I think. Um, and I was maybe even a bit earlier than that, but that's certainly when I started to really put two and two together. And I was, uh, at the time I may have spoken about this in a different, um, interview, uh, where I was, I had my, my gelding at the time and my gelding, uh, was going through, he had been trained by a trainer who was very, uh, overwhelming in his methods. Um, and I, my horse is half draft. And so he takes a little bit longer to process and he needs a bit more time. Um, and he's an easily misunderstood horse and, um, has, uh, can really put up his hunches around things he doesn't like now some people have said well sarah you've encouraged that you know you haven't you know created expectations for him and i'm like well this may be true potentially but i also know that he was overwhelmed and he was trained with methods that went beyond his threshold capacity and then he developed a fear of novelty he wasn't fearful of things when i had him as a yearling um, and around age three i started working with this trainer and then he started to become scared of stuff and that has stuck ever since it's mm. just He's just been like that. He's got a, a healthy self-preservation. 
which some people look at and go, well, that, that makes him difficult. And I go, I go, no, that makes him self-preserving. <laughs> like I just, you know, I have a real understanding and appreciation for his history, you know, and, and what has led him to be how he is. And people will go, well, he's being disrespectful. He's being a dink. He's being da da da. And I'm like, it's only because of situations where he gets a little bit unsure, you know, but and, if that, and that's exactly the, the whole concept of disrespectful to me doesn't exist. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's been, so can you talk about that? Because I don't yeah. know that horses have that concept. They, they don't, they don't have that. Like you said, right. They don't have a really developed prefrontal cortex, right. They, they are, they're the biggest part of their brain is I think the cerebellum. Right. That's and so, huge. and that's huge. And that's based <laughs> on what movement that supports movement. Right. And so if the largest allocation of their brain is around moving their limbs, what does that tell you? Right. Like we, we have to understand this. Uh, Dr. Steve Peters is another person who looks at horse human sort of comparative morphology, right. In terms of, uh, he's this been my guest several times actually. Yeah. He's lovely. <laughs> really lovely. And, uh, just as a small plug, we're about to launch Equiscience, Steve Peters and I, which is really cool. We're doing a, a seven month series for horse owners who want to learn more about some of this stuff. So stay oh, tuned. Awesome. We're, okay. Yeah, we're about to release the information um, about that very shortly. Just tell me what um, the website is and I'll put it in the chat here. Yeah, it's just about to get launched. You, you're more than happy to give it to you now. If you're listening to this video and it's not up yet, please check again in a few days. It will be up very shortly. We're just finishing the back end on the website, but it's equiscience.com. So E-Q-U-U-S-C-I-E-N-C-E.com. Okay, I'm putting in the chat. Just check that I spelled it right. That's correct. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, equiscience.com. Um, and uh, and then you'll be able to register for our seven-month um, series uh, on all of this stuff. Uh, where was I going with that, Wendy? So you were asking about... So we are talking uh, about the cerebellum and how big it is. With respect. And Thank you. And, and so my, so my horse, like I I'm grateful that I have the trauma background that I have, because one of the things in the trauma world is we talk about having a trauma lens on behavior. So understanding things, not from what's wrong with you, you're defective, you're lazy, you're disrespectful, et cetera, but okay, well, how is this, how is this, how is this serving an important function? Let's look at the function and the need behind the behavior as opposed to judging it. Right. Which, you know, is kind of what we still do. And so it reminds me a lot of, um, the uh in the world of addictions you know addictions for humans were called vices for a long time because they implied some sort of moral defectiveness right like the spiritually or morally you're defective you just need to turn to god or you need to get you know you need to acknowledge whatever right or there's some sort of thing um and in reality we know it's it's not as simple as that we know a lot of addiction well most addiction is it has to do with early traumas and early attachment ruptures and and various overwhelming experiences that overwhelmed our capacity to cope that resulted in us not having the brain development and the neurotransmitters we need to cope with life stressors in the future. Mm. And so as a result of that, we seek on the outside of us what we don't have producing naturally inside of us. And that's just how that works. We still call them stable vices and horses, interestingly, uh, even though in the human world, we've tried to move away from the term vices, you know, and so this is where those parallels exist yet again for me. And I go, that's so interesting. You know, we, we have traumatized humans, traumatized horses. We call the coping strategies vices. We call them stable vices. Like the parallels just keep mounting. Yeah. And, and, you know, and so for me, it's like, okay, well, that's interesting. We're treating them the same way that we treat each other from this place of, of lack of understanding. And so my horse again, like, so he developed a lot of fear of objects. And for years I was told, well, you got to just have a heavier hand with him and you've got to just, you know, you got to make him work and you've got to do all these things. And I was like, but like, we have a good relationship. There's 
plenty of other things that he does really well for me, you know, when I ask and he does. And so I go, but it's not as simple as, you know, he's just lazy or he's not, he's wanting to get away with stuff because you've let him get away with stuff for so long. And like, I'm not saying that's not valid, but like, there's plenty of other stuff he wants to do for me. And so then I started to go, okay, well, how much of this then is fear-based and how much of this is a nervous system response pattern now? And, you know, and, and I started to look at it from the standpoint of what I was learning and somatic experiencing and going, okay, are we going above threshold for this guy? You know, is he going, is he escalating really quickly into an activation response? Like how do we start to approach him differently about some of these things? Um, and that's where, um, I kind of moved into the direction of, okay, well, are we attending to thresholds? And then my lens on horse training methods, again, not being a horse trainer, but having a dabbling in sort of the negative reinforcement, sort of natural horsemanship world and having had a dabbling in the positive reinforcement slash behaviorist world. And, and let's bear in mind, negative reinforcement is part of behaviorism. Let's not, right. like, let's not completely separate things out, but the, the split in the industry seems to be such that we've got, you know, this one camp versus this other camp. And there are people who are thankfully in the middle who can recognize that all of this is part of the bigger picture, but like there are these, these extreme sort of positions that are taken. And with my horse Brando, um, you know, everyone was like, well, you need to just keep teaching him. Um, like he had a fear of the mounting block. He and I had a bit of a trauma at the mounting block. I was putting weight on his back one day uh, on a mounting block. I wasn't wearing a helmet. I wasn't planning on riding. I wasn't planning on doing anything. I was literally just putting my weight on his back. The horses that were nearby spooked. He spooked. I tumbled off and had a mild concussion and, you know, whatever. So now <laughs> the things you learn the hard way, I never would ride without a helmet. But that was one of those moments where I was like, oh, I'm not going to. You know, it was one of those things, you know, it's, right? It's so interesting listening to you because the, it's so often that we don't make certain connections, yeah. you know, yeah. like I'm in a position that could be dangerous. Maybe I'll wear my helmet, but I'm yeah. not riding. So I don't associate it, but we do that all the time. You know? Oh, totally. And I feel silly admitting it, but it was one of those human mistakes. And I was like, okay, never again, you know, and, but, and we had done it a million times before. That was a thing I'd, I had stepped on the mounting block, put my weight like late, not, like not even late. I, my feet are still on the mounting block. I'm not completely yep. on them, you know, and, and I'd done it lots of times and it was fine, you know, and anyway, like lessons learned. Right. But this trauma that we'd had at the mounting block involved me tumbling off his back. And, and then ever since then he was afraid of the mounting block because we had this shared experience around activation. Now, how much of that was his association now that mounting blocks are associated with scary things and how much of it also is my own activation in my nervous system mm -hmm. that starts to mount as we're approaching the mounting block, because I'm coming into contact with my own apprehensions and anticipatory activation about the mounting block right so and this is where the somatic experiencing was starting to come in because I was like oh man like I can I'm tracking my body response and I'm tracking his body response and it was so neat to see the the progression happening and what was fascinating was I kept being told by trainers oh you need to use negative reinforcement you've got to give him the option of either he stands by the mounting block and he learns how to relax or you keep you have the stick right and so it's either you know and and there's nothing wrong inherently with negative reinforcement horses use it with each other all the time it's not a problem per se the issue is that this was 
I was being told to use it with regards to a fear-based response, a, a trauma-based response. And, and it wasn't doing it. I mean, I spent years trying to get him over his fear of the mounting block using just negative reinforcement. This might, and I'm going to um, preface this by saying this might work really well for other people. I'm not saying this to cast everything in a negative light. This is my specific situation with my horse in, in that moment. Right. So I'm just speaking to that specifically. Um, and so I spent years trying to do it and it wasn't changing his response to the mounting block. In fact, he, it made him more resistant to the mounting block, of course, right? Because I was basically giving him a double bind and double binds and trauma are you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. I have to pick between two shitty options and either one is going to be awful. So, you know, and those are not great scenarios, you know, and I suspect, and I, this, this is just my theory that some of the early training experiences that he had may have brought him into contact with other double binds where you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. It's either, you know, the intensity of the, of the carrot stick or it's the thing over here. And I get that the whole point is the timing. You remove the stick, you remove the pressure and the horse learns that the pressure is released. And this is what, this is what we want. Um, but I think, suspect a lot of that was overwhelming and beyond threshold for him. So he didn't get to really get the full experience of the learning. It just reinforced more fear because it was beyond threshold. And Let's so, talk about threshold for a minute because yeah. we do it several times. And I just want to make sure that everybody watching understands that. Sure. So can you explain that a little more? Yeah. So when I mean threshold, I talk about um, the, the threshold of tolerance within which it's, there's no survival energy at play. So, um, so for instance, you can use pressure release methods and there's no survival energy involved because it's within a connected relationship. I'm feeling safe and trusting with you. I, you know, the situation feels calm and safe. There's no sort of, you know, um, there's no cues in the environment that make me feel uncomfortable or that send my nervous system into feeling threatened, you know, and, and so I can be experiencing, you know, um, pressure release type methods within a safe context, environmentally and relationally, and it's not gonna cause any harm, right? Because my nervous system is functioning in what we might call general arousal, right? There's a certain amount of sympathetic nervous system on board when I'm, when I'm walking around, right? I mean, I can have a sympathetic nervous system engage. People talk about the sympathetic nervous system as being a bad thing, it's fight or flight. It's not. The sympathetic nervous system is also just involved in basic arousal. Walking down to the corner to go to your mailbox involves a little bit of sympathetic nervous system, right? Because it's, it's the gas pedal, right? You can drive your car, you need the gas pedal on to drive your car. It doesn't mean you're always speeding, right? And so, so, so the nervous system can be within a threshold of tolerance, right? That where there's going to be some arousal and it's okay. And it's, it's tolerable and manageable and it doesn't require an excessive amount of overriding, right? And so that's what I mean by a threshold. When we start to go beyond the threshold is like, okay, we're starting to really increase the levels here. Of, of what we might call activation. So, so some people don't distinguish between arousal and activation. I like to, because it really helps the concepts separate out, right? So um, activation is when we start to have what we call survival activation. It's like, oh, I'm starting to have, so here's polyvagal theory, Steve Porges's work. He talks about neuroception. Neuroception is if there's a sense of safety, danger, or life 
threat. Now, these are his words. This is how he's distinguished them. So safety is, I feel safe environmentally and relationally. My nervous system feels calm. When the cues are there that tell me I'm safe, I have a very specific felt sense experience of safety in my body. And that feels a particular way. Safety feels a way um, that is very specific. And it's not just the absence of danger or life threat. Mm -hmm. safety there's a there's a it's not just by subtraction right there is an actual experience there not just the absence of something so there's the neuroception of safety and this isn't just conscious right neuroception involves all the unconscious processes by which we gather information from our environments as well um and so it's not always consciously aware we're not always consciously aware that we feel unsafe Right. True. So True. right here's a, here's an example. And it's not just it's not really um, a perfect example, but it's a good one. If you've ever been in a building before that had a really noisy ventilation system and suddenly the ventilation system goes off and the, the, the relief or the release feeling in your body that that incessant noise is gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. You learn to tune this stuff out, but the nervous system has a response. And so although we might not be in active fight or flight, the nervous system is now in alert right? Because it's hearing noises that are in a range that the nervous system has learned to detect as a potential source of danger. And you can tell because when it turns off, oh, there's like a, oh man, I didn't even know that was annoying until it stopped, right? My, my illustration so you, of that is when we got our first Prius, my husband, Brad, when yeah. we'd be in traffic, the engine would shut off and he was noticeably calmer instead of right. the aggro of being in a motor. That's right. That's right. Right. And some, for some people, it's more than others. I think about people who have sensory, sensory processing difficulties, people who have, who are autistic, people who have ADHD, people who have various challenges with sensory stuff, or even people with PTSD or other forms of trauma, like these background noises are actually quite in, invasive and intrusive. Um, but even for the average individual, these can be these background things that our nervous systems kick in about. Right. So I, so when I think of thresholds, I go, okay, like the thresholds can sometimes be really subtle and it's sometimes hard to detect when we go from being in tolerable arousal, say when there's a neuroception of safety to when it starts to go into activation around potential danger, which is a neuroception of danger. It's like, uh Oh, this is where we start to mobilize fight or flight response energy. Right. Um, and uh, some, some appeasement behaviors can happen right? When I feel a certain amount of danger, but not threat as in I'm going to die, but there's a, there's risk, right? So danger is sort of a step before that. Um, and then we go into life threat, which is okay. I'm imminently going to die, or there's a perception that my bodily and, and or emotional integrity is about to be completely uh, debilitated or, or obliterated. So uh, then we go into a shutdown, right? Right. So uh, and then there can be um, more recently, I'm having to change my, my graphs soon because <laughs> uh, I was placing fawn in a different spot in the graph than it actually is located because I was confusing fawn with appeasement. So even I'm learning stuff. Wait, about you're confusing what with appeasement? Fawn, the fawn response. F A W N. Describe the fawn response, please. Fawn response uh, is uh, when uh, sort of like uh, people who are begging for their lives, people who are in supplication, people who are trying to just basically uh, roll over and comply or or submit to uh, someone who's harming them in order to avoid further harm or to uh, avoid being killed. Um, And so to me, I viewed that as a spectrum 
of a particular response pattern in the nervous system from like low grade appeasement, which is where I'm still engaged, but I'm trying to like, you know, tend and befriend the enemy by trying to placate and be friendly up to all the way to that. But apparently they're quite different mechanisms in the nervous system. So even I'm having to adjust my own. Wow. The more we learn, the more we learn, huh? (laughs) Oh yeah. I know. I was like, Oh, it's just a spectrum. Oh no. They're completely, completely separated. Um, which makes sense to me now. So stay tuned for updated graphs from Sarah, because I but that's fine because we all, these are iterative processes, right? We're always, like you said, growing and learning and your stuff adjusts based on the new information. So I think that's a sign of, of a safe, safe and trustworthy model is that it constantly changes based on information, right? So, um, and we can all do the best, we can only do the best we can, of course. So, um, so if my horse Brando was beyond threshold, so uh, horses and humans that go beyond threshold have very particular ways of managing in the world, right? And you can start to see it because they get into more addictive behaviors or they get into overriding or they get into um, different kind of, well, horses won't have the, a lot of the psychodynamic intellectualizing type responses that humans have like projection and, and suppression and, you know, all these different kinds of things, right? Um, humor, for instance, and what have you. Um, although horses certainly do have deflection capabilities where, right. So, and it could show up as funny behaviors over here that we might call humor in a human, or that we might call, you know, being a class clown or being uh, disrespectful. Right. Uh, And, and so we start to see that happening, but for my horse Brando, it was like, he would start to resist and you can start to see resistance. And in the psychotherapy world, Um, some people view resistance as a problem. Like you're supposed to like, you know, dismantle resistance. Those are the original older models of psychoanalysis and so on. It's like, you want to break resistance down and get to what's beneath it. More, more recent models in psychotherapy are more about like, let's roll with the resistance because it's clearly serving a function. Right. Mm -hmm. And if the, if the more we do triggers more resistance, then we're doing too much. We're going, we're doing more than what that nervous system has the capacity for because it's going into its management strategies, which is what we call them in somatic experiencing. It's going into the the coping mechanisms, right? And so it, so SE or somatic experiencing is really about how do we titrate this down into building capacity to be with tiny, tiny amounts of the scary thing, as opposed to going into too big of a threshold that triggers resistance, for instance you know, um, and, and, and that's sort of where I came to with it was, gosh, okay, I'm trying to do this thing with my horse and you must be more heavy handed and you've got to put your foot down and you got to expect more from the relationship. And again, I think within reason, there's some bits of that that aren't untrue, but I also think it's, there's a lot of caveats around that in terms of like, what's going on for the nervous system, what's going on for my horse. He's not in a neuroception state that allows him to do the thing that I'm asking him. Right. Right. And that's the thing. Steve Porges makes it very clear. Neuroception, the state that we're in, in terms of a neuroception will result in very specific behaviors and, 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 and possibilities. If you're in one neuroception state, you can't expect a horse or a, or a human specifically, but other mammals as well to be able to do the thing that you'd expect them to do in a neuroception of safety, if they're in a neuroception of danger, for instance, the the, the behaviors are not possible. And if they are, if they do occur, they come at a cost, 
right? And so, so for me, I go, wow, okay, so what's going on with my horse? What's his neuroception? What is happening? Is he even still connected with me? And I started to apply what I was learning in these other attachment and somatic based models of psychotherapy to what's going on with my horse. Can I track him in the same way? Can I see, is he still connected to me or has he checked out? Is he now overwhelmed by survival energy? Is he stoic? My horse is a part draft. My, my, my one gelding, my mare is a totally different nervous system, but my <laughs> gelding, oh, oh wow. She's totally different. She's fascinating. Um, but he, he's really interesting because he will, will go stoic and he looks like he's coping well. And then suddenly he isn't. And it's like, oh, that came out of nowhere. Well, actually, no, it was probably building up for quite some time. Right. And it's just, he's really good at masking like so many humans are right. Well, and, then, and, uh, and a good friend of mine, Robin Hood, who's a T-touch trainer talks right. about them being slushy. So they're in a state, some state of freeze, but they're still moving like your school horses and they're yeah. slushy, but, but they're not really okay. And so then it doesn't take much to flip them into really not okay. That's right. Yeah. They're well, they're already over threshold. So, and they're managing, they're managing, 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 managing. Some people in the SC world will talk about something called functional freeze, right? Where we're doing a good job of looking like we're going along with stuff, but at the end of the day, ultimately we're wildly overriding. And it, it's like the tiniest little prick is going to result in a massive explosion. And that's where it really started to hit home for me because my horse was getting ridden by somebody um, and, uh, and he had him under saddle and my horse tossed him twice on two different occasions. The first time was he removed his hat um, and he handed me his cowboy hat because he didn't want to keep wearing it. And Brando um, saw the hat arrive, arrive out of his periphery and it freaked him out and he tossed the rider. And it was interesting because, you know, technically speaking, we had done a lot of desensitization around things above his head and carrot sticks being whipped around his head and, you know, all the standard sort of, I think of the like various methods that are used and, and he was okay, but I, and he tolerated that stuff without any really real issues, but then it started to occur to me and I went, but was he actually okay? Or was he just tuned out when that stuff was happening? And so, um, and then another one happened where he was, uh, this person was in saddle and he removed his, his foot from the stirrup to adjust his boot. And Brando sees this boot thing arriving out of his peripheral vision. And again, the person gets tossed. He hasn't been ridden since mainly because I don't do a lot of riding. I'm more of an on the ground horse kind of gal. I've got too many um, spinal and musculoskeletal issues to ride safely and one more head injury and I'm not going to be in a good place. So I, I do a lot of stuff on the ground instead and that's fine. Like I I've, I've ridden and it's sad, but at the same time, I don't like, it's okay. Like I'm, I'm all right with that. I'd rather be alive. <laughs> so, well, I was going to say there's that self-preservation kicking in. Yeah, and for me, for me. Yes. But I'm not resistant. Am I being called resistant? Because I don't want to get on the back of a horse. No. Right. Because I'm not affecting anybody's egos and I'm not doing anything that's going to get in the way of anybody getting some sort of recognition. But if a horse says no to something, it's a problem. Right. And so, right. And so this is where it started to kind of go, oh, and the species isn't at play, right? Like horses are supposed to have jobs. Horses are supposed to earn their keep. Horses are supposed to bloody and again, I'm not saying this to shame anybody or anything. This is a historical thing. We've, we've 
quote unquote used horses for transportation and all these things for, for eons, right? Ever since they started to be domesticated. So it's not, I'm not trying to poo poo any of that. It's just more, I look at sort of where do these beliefs and, and perspectives come from, Absolutely. right? Right. It's, 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 it is what it is. If this, we live in an anthropocentric world that this is just how it is, how it is. And horses have to learn how to live in a human oriented world where in sometimes they're expected to do stuff and, and not all the things that we expect them to do are harmful, but sometimes they are right. And that's where it, it becomes challenging. And because horses don't have a really good prefrontal cortex where they can rationalize that something is it's just going to be a few minutes. It's going to be okay. You know, like, you know, it's going to be over very shortly. I promise you you're safe. You know, are you here with me? And you know, all these things that we can do to support connection and, and to reassure that doesn't mean anything right They're in their survival parts of their brain. Cause that's what the largest parts of the brain are is, is self-preservation and movement. Right. And so when a horse gets kind of scared at something and decides to not do the thing we accuse them of being non-compliant and getting away with stuff and being spoiled and I'm like but they don't have those concepts right how and then I think to myself is that how you were parented is that how you know how were you parented those words don't sound like words that a horse would use like where did you get those words from like you know I get curious about what creates horse horse people to have the beliefs that they do as a psychotherapist that's more my interest right that's so that's a whole other topic that it, I know <laughs> for hours because you know people are drawn to horses unconsciously yeah. for many reasons and often oh, right. it's mirror what they need to you know or who yeah. they are and yes we could go on a, a very long time we do well I remember Linda Kohanov talked about that in one of her books was it Linda no was it might have been Linda I know for um who was the other person um, Carolyn Resnick talked mm -hmm. about in, in Naked Liberty, she talks about, uh, I'm pretty sure though Linda probably talks about this as well, but uh, about how many people, especially women are, um, are, are drawn to horses as little girls you know, um, or as children or, um, you know, and they're, they're drawn to, to horses as, as children. And they have these dreams of freedom and liberty and these, you know, these grandiose sort of images. And then they get involved in the horse world and it's kind of stripped from them, you know, because they get with trainers who, you know, and, you know, just, you keep whipping them until you get what you want, you know, and you get this sort of very disillusioned experience. And, uh, and some people leave the horse world because of that. And other people stay in it because, well, they're looking for approval, you know, and they, they want to please, they want to be approved if they want to not, they want to avoid criticism, you know, and, 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 and so sometimes there's these, what we call reenactments in the psychodynamic therapy world, we talk about reenactments where we recreate situations in other, in other places that are actually a reflection of an earlier pattern that we've experienced, right? And so if I say was in a family where there wasn't a lot of unconditional love where love and, and affirmation and connection were provided when I achieved something, you know, sometimes then we see that get repeated in sort of advanced athletics, you know, of various kinds, horsemanship being one of them sometimes. Now, this isn't to say that all horse training or all horse disciplines are full of trauma and abuse. Let, let's not throw the baby with the bathwater. There's some really wonderful coaches out there, you know, and there are some people who do work with horses and with humans from a really trauma informed ethical place. And there's also a lot of rampant abuse. Yeah. You know, and, there's everything. And, I think that the horse yeah. world is a microcosm of dysfunction and function across yeah. the board. And um, sure. sure. 
you know, people play out all of, as you say, their unconscious patterns in who they associate with and what type of discipline they go into and the trainers that they associate, you know, because um, I've watched that for years and years. We we self-select, right? And it's unconscious. It's not on purpose, right? But like, I I look at people who there's a lot of guru culture in the horse world, right? And, and you look at guru culture in the spiritual world, you know, the people who go to these retreats and end up sexually abused by like the guru kind of thing, right? Like this happens, it's, it's prolific. You look at the people who get brought into or drawn to guru culture type situations and often in the history there's going to be some stuff I mean there's there's going to be some childhood stuff with parents family of origin whatever that unconsciously lead people into situations where they're re-victimized and it's it's not on purpose I'm not trying to blame the victim it's 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 whatever behavior happens by a guru say towards his followers or her followers is wrong that's not correct just because you follow that doesn't mean you're deserving of abuse right and what are the what are the, um, the risk factors, I guess, that make this more likely to occur is what I'm pointing the finger at, as opposed to you're deserving of the blame of this, right? So it's more the risk factor as opposed to, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, Peter Levin's, uh, is it talking, walking with the tiger? Um, Waking the tiger was his first book in 97. Um, Very Mm -hmm. interesting book. And one of the things that for me was fascinating is on October 3rd, 1984, I had a horse rear up and flip over and roll over me and punch my femur through my hip socket. So massive trauma, right? And um, so much of what I read in that book, the body shaking, which would happen, like I worked with Sally Swift and she'd touch my left leg and it would start to flip around like a fish at the end of a line. And someone would have to come over and ground it. And I never understood these things that my body was going through, but also the recreation of patterns because that happened October 3rd and twice on October 3rd, years later, I would have horses rear up with me. Yeah. Uh, so I don't get on a horse on October 3rd anymore. <laughs> but there's there, that was so fascinating to me to, to yeah. um, read about how we, we recreate, there's something that hasn't been satisfied or resolved and that we keep repeating that, whether that's with our horses. Yeah. And so often we can see that with people with their horses that they keep buying a horse that's gonna wind up in the same situations the one they just had that's or right. trainers or, you know. right. That's right. And and I like that you've named that because I'm the first person to admit that I've fallen prey to that, but not fallen prey to it. That's the wrong languaging. I, I have wound up in that kind of pattern myself. I have patterns myself. I mean, this is why I'm so fascinated by this stuff because I look at my own situation. I go, man, I've kind of done all these things as well, you know? And and so I'm not saying this to cast blame. I say this with a lot of appreciation for our shared humanity because I'm like, oh man, I think this happens to me too. You know, like I picked my horse in some ways because he reminds me of me, you know, like he, you know, he has a really strong no. And in some ways I've allowed him to have a no because I think that's important, you know, and we have a really good relationship. There are some things he does really well some things he's great at other things he's not so great at yeah sometimes he doesn't want to do some things and it's not because he's afraid it's just because he doesn't wanna right he's like a big teenager okay fair enough right that's fine but i'm not planning on riding him i'm not in any crazy disciplines you know i'm not like doing anything that requires some sort of higher level of athleticism you know i work i want to make sure that he's healthy you know, and those kinds of things. But other than that, like, no, I'm fine if he has a no, and that's cool. And, and there are going to be some people in situations for whom that's not going to work as well, or the amount of no's that are allowed or, uh, you know, accepted will, will change, will differ, you know? And, and, well, and, and the other thing is that when, when you get a no, it, it may not be an, it may be a no from that direction, but a slight shift in perspective gets a yes. Right. Totally. Um, 
You know, my oh. horse didn't want his muzzle the other day. So I put a cookie in it. We got a yes, we got the muzzle on, you know. Right. <laughs> um, but shaping it so that the it's some people think when a horse says no, that that's the end all and be all. And right. I don't realize horses are very, they're very simple. Yeah. Reshaping the question to that's right. frame it for them. That's right. Like, uh, like the other day, like, so yesterday, so my horses have been rubbing up against the fences and, uh, and I want to sort of discourage them from doing that. I don't have electric fencing around one area where they tend to do this. Um, and I like, okay, well, what can I do to discourage some of this rubbing? And I was like, okay, I'm going to find something that I can install that they can rub against that will sort of save my fences. So I, I wasn't able to get something get to the, the tax store didn't have what I was looking for, but I did really find this really cool bristly broom, like a really, really cool bristly head on a, like one of those long broom brushes. And it was really bristly. We're not talking like some basic one, but like really a really good heavy duty one. And so we removed the head and, um, and I showed them what it was for. And they were, my, my mare was like, what is this thing? And I kind of, you know, I could see her know, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to kind of play with the edge of where the threshold is. And are you cool if I do this? And it was a lot of seeking permission around, Hey, and then eventually she was like, Oh man, this feels good when she rubs it on my chest or she, this feels good when it shows on my bum, my Brando, that's my rare Ruby Brando. He's a lot more, um, again, that fear of novelty, right? He's got a lot more healthy self-preservation again, because of his early experiences. And so I have to go a lot more slowly with him. So I showed it to him by doing it with her first. Yeah. Right. And then he was still like, he wouldn't let me go right up to him. That would have been like, you could already see his apprehension. I, I, I had it in my hand and I moved towards him and you could see his face and his the little peaky question mark above the eye like what is you know and you could see the worry you know and I was like okay nope we're gonna just do this really slowly you're gonna sniff this on your own terms and he and I have this game of touch it which is a bit of a behavior shaping sort of thing uh, using positive reinforcement is you know I want you to touch this thing and then you're gonna get a click and a treat and so but I didn't have any treats on me that day so I was just like here you can touch this on your own terms and he knows I allow him that choice and so even without the treats I was like here and he was like can I <laughs> like you can see him questioning it and then he eventually brings his nose up to it and he's like yep yeah, no this is great this is fine and then I moved over to his shoulder and then sort of slowly as you could see him watching me and he was like oh oh this is nice and then like he kind of leaned into it but had I gone any faster it would have been beyond his threshold his threshold for some novelty is really small right and so he needs a bit more time and some people might go no you just need to be able to tolerate this and i go right but that's gonna end, that's gonna end up in a fight and do i want to fight no i want this to be a positive experience i don't want him to have more negative connotations associated with scary new objects the the, the objects are already scary and novel for him <laughs> like he he right. needs more time right so if i give him tolerating that which doesn't mean acceptance that's right. Tolerating is just putting up. Being compliant doesn't mean you've consented, as I've written in a different blog post before, right? So lots of us have learned how to just go along with stuff. It doesn't mean that we're okay with it. That said, there's a range of going along with that's within threshold, right? It doesn't require a lot of excess energy or capacity. It's just, you know, yeah, I don't really like this all that much, but I'm going to just do it because okay, right? Like we all have to do that. Fine. Fair enough. But like, when it comes to this kind of nuanced level of, I no longer feel safe, right? Then I kind of go, you know what? I'm going to take the extra, maybe five minutes. It's going to take for me to him get used to this brush on his terms. 
than to force him to use the brush. Cause then he's going to avoid the brush on the, on right. the fence post. He's not even going to touch it. Right. And so I want to increase the likelihood that I, my fences are not going to get destroyed, not, <laughs> you know, and that means take an extra five minutes, you know, but that requires me to be regulated. That requires me to check, put in check my own beliefs about expectations. Like what is going on for him? And is it so much more extra time out of my day to recognize his thresholds, watch his body language, read what he's telling me and allow him to do this at his own pace. You know? and, and I think, you know, uh, um, I've often thought about the history of riding and our relationship with horses and where we are now. And yeah. so, so if you look at people back, you know, let's just go back to settlement days. They tolerated, everybody had to tolerate. You had to tolerate the weather. You had to tolerate the broken wheel on the wagon. You had to tolerate the bad, you know, that was our state of being. Yeah. We have progressed from that state of being and what's happening now in the horse world is that that's starting to catch up in the way we interact with our horses that instead of making them tolerate things or just put up with things we're we're slowly uh, evolving in our thought process to bring that same uh, understanding of learning that we have been applying to children to horses and in that way horses and children learn in very similar ways yeah well, and there's more to learning than just learning theory, right? There's lots right. of ways that we learn. And this is where I often talk about going beyond behaviorism because there's a place for that. And there's a place for using that appropriately, but it's not the full picture. There's more going on, you know? And I, if I think about the humane hierarchy, uh, I think, is it uh, Sandra Friedman or Susan Friedman? I, anyway, I forget the first name. I, I apologize in advance. Um, but the, I like the humane hierarchy because it talks a little bit about the order, the proposed order in which we should be doing things. And one of the things I extrapolate on is, you know, they talk about you want to make sure that the conditions are right, right? Like that the health and safety concerns are taken care of, you know, and the antecedents are looked like, which is the thing before the thing, right? What are the things? right, that, that are the contextual, whether relational or environmental or historical uh, issues that are feeding into the situation before you go training the situation out of the situation, right? So you, before bringing in training methods, let's look at the antecedents. And that's where I was like, okay, so an article that you were mentioning that has kind of made the rounds again recently, uh, where I called connection before concepts, um, which is this idea of, you know, what are the antecedents? What is, what are the conditions here that are in play? And if like, and, and this is where I like the humane hierarchy in terms of the fact that we're, there's more going on here. This is where attachment comes in. This is where the neuroception of safety comes in. This is where the trauma history comes in. This is that area alone, I think could be blasted open in, in way more nuanced ways because there's so much richness in just that layer alone you know, and, and the previous layer to antecedents, I believe is, is sort of health and, and, and welfare and so on, and looking at health conditions and making nutrition, making sure nutrition is taken care of and what have you. But we also know that health and antecedents intersect, right? We look at the adverse childhood experiences research in, in human children and how um, adult disease is, is based on early experiences of adversity. So the two feed into each other. And in fact, according to the adverse childhood experiences study, the adversity comes first and then there's the health issues. Whereas in the humane hierarchy, you're looking at the health issues and then you're looking at the adversity. So it, they're not, it's not wrong. It's just interesting that those, those factors are a bit reversed in their order. Um, and so when we're looking at antecedents, I go, okay, cool. Does my horse feel safe? Does my horse feel safe with me? What is his neuro neuroception? If, if he is in a neuroceptive state of danger or life threat, 
and he's either shutting down or he's overriding and he's being stoic and he's compliant, but he's not actually present in his body. And he's just doing it to go along with what was expected of him because otherwise the consequence would be to have the stick. Like, you know, like if, if he's like, what is going on there? Because that says a lot. If the horse doesn't feel safe with me, he's not going to want to do stuff. Right. If I escalated and said, no, you're going to hear, you're going to have this brush and I'm going to put this brush on your shoulder and I'm going to put this brush on your bum and you're going to like it. Right. And you're going to get over it because you need to get over it and just get over it. You're fine. And if I came at it with that attitude, he's going to go, oh, she's not seeing this isn't conscious. Right. Because they no. don't have that cortex. But there's a felt sense experience of feeling unmet. Right. We were all infants at one point and didn't have language right? Where our brains were not super developed. And so our early experiences of the world were somatic, basically felt sense. I felt something, right? And I felt when there was a disconnect, the early research on uh, attachment in humans, they did some studies. uh, Don't, if you have any kind of trauma history, I would advise you not to go look up the still face experiment videos on YouTube. Um, So just as a caveat there, um, and I'll just describe what it is where they had a mother engaging with her, her child. Um, and, um, and then they would instruct the mother, like the, you know, the mother, mother's face would be a particular way. They may have done this with other parents of other genders as well, but the original research was with moms. Um, and they, they, the baby would respond and you could see the, the back and forth, the, the pinging, right? Like mom's face would light up, baby's face would light up, baby would make a coo, mom would coo. And there was this beautiful relational sort of feeling felt getting gotten kind of experience, right? With each other. And we can feel that the baby doesn't go, oh, I'm being, I'm feeling felt and getting gotten right now. My mother is attuning to me. Like the, the child doesn't know this. This is an infant. The brain but has not developed to even not to consciously acknowledge that. No, but there's a felt sense experience because you can see the facial expression, the body's calm, the face is bright, like there's a lighting up, there's a relational dynamic. So obviously on some level, there's a bodily felt sense of safety and connection, right? We feel it and we feel it when it goes away because in the still face experiment, the mom was instructed to make her face go blank. So basically lack of facial expression, thousand mile stare, no engagement. Right. So the baby would try to engage with mom and mom was just instructed not to engage. They only did this for a short amount of time to not cause trauma. Right. But it was still one of those kind of, in spite of the fact it was still short, it was still very telling because when mom's face was instructed to go blank or parent face was instructed to go blank, infants started to have confusion and distress and, and, and start to like have a lot of crying or resistance and pushing, wanting to push the parent away and like braced responses in the arms and all these kinds of things started to happen. Uh, And then they would engage, they would instruct the parent to re-engage facially with the infant to restore connection. And then you could see the child's nervous system calm and feel settled and so on and so forth when the connection and the attunement were available. Horses don't know, oh, I'm feeling felt, da 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 right? Or, oh, I'm being misattuned with. They can't, it's like an infant. They can't rationalize that. But there's a felt sense right. of I'm expressing discomfort and you're still doing something anyway. And that feels a particular way in the body. Right. Right? That feels a particular way. And it leads to distrust right? It's like, oh, okay, I'm doing this thing. So yeah, could I have gone with this broom handle, broomstick bristle thing, you know, and forced my way onto my horse potentially, but But to what end? Well, to what end, right? Because I wanted it to go faster. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And it went way slower in the end because he would reject it. 
he would totally. not and then I, it. That's right. And then I would have bought this broom head for no reason because my horse won't even touch the damn thing. Right. And so then I would have even been more annoyed and it would have reinforced my right. own beliefs at sea. Right. So the belief that, oh, he's being disrespectful is self-reinforcing. It reinforces my sense of justification of being frustrated at my own horse. And then that just perpetuates. And then I think to myself, because I'm a somebody who has a history of having experienced a lot of frustration in my own life as a young child and a lot of, a lot of different experiences of misattunement and a lot of different things going on there. And then I think to myself, I'm so used to feeling frustrated as a baseline state where my needs are not met in a way that feels supportive or helpful. Is this now just another reenactment for me of my own felt sense experience of frustration that I'm so familiar with, right? And so here's the layers. And this is why Sarah is a psychotherapist and not a horse trainer, but, <laughs> but, I, but, it's, but it's useful information because I go, but this is where the problems stem from. Not all of them, but like, it's so interesting for me, you know, where I go, man, like what is planned? out here, you know, and what, what is getting, what is infiltrating or con contaminating sounds like the wrong word, but like, what is, well, what mirroring is because we, you know, the, the, we come to the horses with a certain attitude yeah. will, and they mirror that back yeah. to us. And if we take it as them to us and not recognize it's us to them, to us, then we react to that and it escalates because they're just projecting back what we put out. Well, and, and they're not just blank slates that just project, right? They're, as some colleagues of mine um, uh, in the natural lifemanship world, they talk about how horses are not mirrors, right? They're not mirrors. They're a real living, breathing being in an actual relationship with us. So I get, I get, the, I get the mirror metaphor. Like, I don't, I, I'm not trying to but like. No, you're right. The I, it's true because I know Callie King. You obviously probably know Callie. Yeah. So, yes, yeah. I know Callie. Yeah. <laughs> Small yeah, Callie's lovely. Yeah, lovely. And, and, and Callie promotes the same sort of perspective as well, right? I have, uh, you know, we have a lot of, there's a lot of shared kindred, kindred spirits out there. And, and right. so one of the things out of, out of their world is that, you know, they're, the horse is not a mirror. The horse is not a metaphor. The horse is a living, breathing being that's having its own felt sense experience in this moment. Yes, there may be. And from my perspective, I go, yes. And there may be a reenactment playing out and there may be, and that can be true. And there can be um, sort of projection happening. Like we project our needs and feelings onto the horse and we end up in a reenactment of a similar pattern in our lives because we've had that pattern elsewhere. And sure, that's fair because that's what we bring to the relationship. But the horse isn't just this blank slate. It comes right. to the relationship also with a history of, I mean, how many horses in captivity were weaned too young? How many horses in captivity had imprint training? How many horses in captivity, you know, were separated from their bands and didn't get to choose their family bands and were forced into different situations and had ulcers and were stalled for prolonged periods. Like we know the captivity conditions that create trauma and addictions issues in horses. They're very similar to humans, right? And so, you know, how many horses have that? So they come into this relationship with us and yes, it may be our reenactment of a familiar pattern that the horse is involved in, but they're not just not feeling it, right? right. I think that, right. yeah, they are their own they're in as well. Yeah. yeah, they're in it as well. And they're having their own experience of that. And, and it's, it's, it's uh, as opposed to being a blank slate that it's just mirroring us right. back to ourselves, yeah. right? Yes, there is a mirroring, but they, you know what I mean? Like it's more nuanced than that. So yeah. I get. But it's, you know, if we bring our frustration, my point is, if we bring our frustration yeah. to the barn, we're going to, we're going to see our frustration in front of us in their behavior. Right. Because I look at it more in terms of the transfer of nervous system state. So yeah. is it that they're just a mirror or is it this, this literally social? Oh, coherence? I see what you're saying. Right. Is it blank slate mirror that the horse is going, well, here's what you're doing. 
No, it's, it's, I'm reacting a certain way. My nervous system is in a particular state. The horse's nervous system is pinging off of that and is now in that same state as well. Got it. Right. So now we're back and we talk about that joint nervous system. As soon as you start working with a person and you put your hands on, you actually have a conjoined nervous system because it's interacting with the, with the person you're touching. You got it. I'll give an example. I did a touch training. So uh, the somatic world has a lot of offshoot trainings on working with somatic touch and touch for attachment regulation and various other kind of, there's so many within the world that I come from. And as a Feldenkrais practitioner, you'd probably really appreciate that. And so I've, I have a number of touch trainings uh, in my toolkit that I've used. And I went to a training once and I was on the treatment table as the, as the recipient of touch and someone was going to practice on me. And, um, they put their hand sort of like right here, mm-hmm. you know, sort of just below the diet, just sort of below the diaphragm, upper belly sort of area. And, um, I immediately felt anxious, like distressed, panicky, anxious. And, and my practitioner, the person who was in that, in the helper role, who was testing this out for the first time, they were like, okay, so track that sensation. What are you noticing as my, as my, I come into contact, you know, da, da, da. And I'm like, uh, and they're like, oh, is this your first time receiving touch? I'm like, no, I've had a lot of touch work and body work over time. I can almost guarantee you this isn't mine. Like this doesn't feel like my energy. Like I, it happened the second you put your hand there. So it's possible it's mine, but can we test something? So I, I, I as the, as the, quote unquote patient on the table, I said, would you remove your hand for a moment and we'll see what happens. So she removes her hand and sure enough, my anxiety goes away. And, and so technically that still could have been my anxiety about her touching me, but I asked her and I said, how are you feeling right now? And, and this person admitted and said, you know, I, I missed the first couple of days of the module. I'm arriving now. This is my first attempt at putting a hand on somebody. So I'm actually feeling really nervous. And so that's how it was for sure for me. I was like, okay, yeah, that was the transfer. And I felt it through touch, right? You know, right to my gut, which, you know, our enteric nervous system is a whole, There's a whole bunch of vagal stuff there that uh, Feldenkrais does. Yeah. Yeah, for for sure. (laughs) So, but just to say as an example, like it, it, it's, it's this transfer. I sensed her nervous system state by how she was feeling when she put her hand on my belly, but you can sense into somebody's state just by standing next to him. Absolutely. Or or her or them, right? Like you, you don't need to um, be in physical contact to, to pick up on a state. You know, well, and this uh, is, you know, one of the, I don't know how much you know about Sherfa, but one of the things I have to be so careful of when I do a workshop is the amount of time people are actually around the horses when they're on Sherfa yeah. pads. And because what happens is the people sit there in their chairs drooling, they all just chill. And I, I can't talk to them anymore. So I have to titrate <laughs> um, because when horses stand on Sherfa pads, they go into this parasympathetic and I, I've talked to Stephen Peters. In fact, he was one of the first people I showed it when I first started. Cool. Um, they, the horses electromagnetic field for lack of a better word, expands sure. and engulfs everybody in the space and everybody just winds up chilled. And so, yeah. you know, it, it, again, it just, I have an example of going to a dinner party that isn't, you know, your boss's dinner party and how we, we walk in and we're nervous and we feel that and we have that felt sense that's beyond our physical body. Well, and so here's where I get really curious, right? Because I'm aware of the HeartMath Institute's research knowledge right around electromagnetic fields of the heart. And I'm also aware of research studies 
that talk about how detecting the electromagnetic field outside the body is actually incredibly hard to do unless you've got really, really high tech medical equipment. And, and so, so there's some contradictory information even in the literature around what is it we're actually detecting. Um, and so then I think to myself, well, if, we, if, we, if that's not sure, if there's sort of question marks around what is actually being detected here, there's something's being detected. I just don't know what, right? And there's, there's articles about that that I think are really interesting in terms of theorizing, like what is actually being picked up on, you know, is it just noise or are we picking up on the signal and the noise? And cause that's always the question in research is like, what are we actually researching and what are we actually evaluating or assessing here? Um, but if I take that sort of lens out of it um, and I go, okay, just from a nervous system standpoint, you know, is it electromagnetic field? Potentially, I'm not saying that's wrong, right? Cause again, there's so much we don't know. Um, but also is this just neuroception, right? Is it, sure. is it yeah. my nervous system picking up on cues in other people's nervous systems that can be detected from a distance felt sense still, but is it electromagnetic or is it, is it neuroception in a different way? And that's, and I go, who knows? I get really curious, but and I do know that, you know, for that matter, it could be, uh, um, um, I just lost the word, you know, smell, smelly stuff, uh, pheromones. <laughs> It could be the slightest detection of body posture and the slightest detection of a, of a, of a tightness in the jaw that we're picking yeah. up on unconsciously. Like who knows what we're picking up on, but the point is, is that we're picking up on it, right? Absolutely. Regardless of with the story we tell ourselves about how we're doing it, that that's cool. That, the, the, the research can still work on figuring out exactly what's happening there, but we do know what happens, right? Yeah. And that's, that's the part for me that I get important about is, okay, we're noticing this. And if we have our own experiences and our own history of learning to be disconnected from that, which we're trying to pick up on, how good are we actually at detecting what's going on? And so I, I, I picked a, I wrote a, an article the other day, a blog post about um, horse human attachment research and five, five points to consider in horse human attachment research. And I just put this out about a week ago. Uh, and one of them was um, having to do with, uh, are we, um, are we creating, are, are the conditions that horses live in creating traumatized horses that we then, you know, evaluate and call that normal horse behavior? When in reality, what we're seeing is horse behavior as a result of captivity conditions, you know, that may be evidence of attachment traumas and various other traumas. And what we're seeing in evaluating and calling normal horse behavior is actually evidence of adversity. And, and so if we're that disconnected from our own sense of our own bodies and our own um, neuroception, how are we able to even pick up on the neuroception of horses? And is the, you know, and a lot of people who are attracted to horses might have histories, right? A lot of people turn to horses because they call them my therapist, you know, my, my horse is my therapist and right. And, and being with my horse makes me present and it helps me feel grounded. And this can all be true and lovely, you know, but then I think to myself, gosh, how many people are self-selecting into being horse owners? Has anyone done a study, a research study of people who are automatic, who are drawn to horses? What's their history all about, right? And are they aware of their bodies? Are they aware of their own tendency to override? Are they aware of what is going on there? Can they pick up on it in horses? Are they projecting stuff onto horses that isn't actually happening because it's their own stuff? Like this isn't to, to, to malign horse owners. 
I'm one of them. <laughs> I'm speaking a lot about my own experiences here when I talk about this. So, so when I say this, it's, it's because I'm coming from my own background, right? And I go, man, like, what was I missing? Because I wasn't even noticing it in myself. And I really didn't notice it with my horse Brando, because although I was learning somatic experiencing and learning all this stuff in a human to human context, I was seeing these things playing out with my horse, but I was allowing the trainers to tell me, oh no, you need to be heavy handed. You need to do this. You need to do that. So I, I, out of my own tendency to obey authority and to follow rules and to be pray to gurus, right? I, I've over time, I no longer do that stuff, but there was a time in my life where that was really powerful for me. And that was a pattern that I had. Um, I was like, oh my God, like I was in my own trauma response by blindly ignoring my horse's body signs, the very signs I was learning to detect in myself and other people. I was ignoring them in my horse because I was listening to the guru. Right. And then, and it was like, man, I, my trauma pattern yet again. <laughs> you know? yeah. And so it's so been neat. Because I think so many of us can, can relate to these personal stories that you're sharing in terms mm -hmm. of, uh, and the thing that, that just keeps going through my mind is the human experience is, is such a conundrum. It's yeah. just, um, we have the power to, to even think about these concepts, which horses yeah. don't have the ability to do. But right. when we start to think about them, we can get ourselves so wrapped in a twist because it just, there are unanswerable questions. You know, am I doing this because I'm recreating my own? Well, maybe, or maybe now that you notice, maybe that was, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, well, Oh. Yeah. Well then, well, then what's different if we slow it down? Right. So there's all this head knowledge and we're talking from a pretty heady place today and that's fine. You know, um, if I were to bring up this top, this whole topic from a, a somatic standpoint, like we'd be slowing that this way the heck down. Right. And going, so, so as we're talking about this, what are you noticing in your body? Like if I was coming at this from a therapeutic standpoint and working with the, the body's experience of this heady topic, we'd be doing this very differently. I mean, we would have slowed down after the first five minutes, we would have been like still in minute one of this conversation because we'd be tracking what's going on in your nervous systems listening to this topic you know and then being with what's the nuances of what's starting to show up in, in the body response right so we're kind of bypassing a lot of that just to kind of get to the content but there's a whole other layer of awareness here playing out. So people might be going, well, so what? So what if this is happening? Well, yeah, so what? There's a, that's a great question. Like, so what happens in your body as you ask the so what? what's happening for you right now as you're hearing this, you know, like, and let's, let's start there. Cause there's so much and it doesn't, I, I, I like to tell people, you know, this can all be really overwhelming. You know, it's like, Oh my God, like what have I been doing all this time? And there's so much healing for me to do. It's like, yeah, that's cool. Let's all start where we are. I don't have all the answers. I still mess up. I still have days where I go, I get frustrated. I have, I've got ADHD and I get a little frustrated some days. And, and one of the th ways it manifests for me is that I, I, I have really long standing patience, but then it's like, it just takes one thing and I'm, I'm no longer patient. It's like, okay, I've been tolerant long enough. And then I, I lose, I lose patience. I've had times where I've lost patience with my horses you know, and, and, and I have to monitor my own self-regulation still, that's still a thing. I'm going to keep working on that because that's part of my neurodiversity. Like I've still got stuff that makes it a challenge for me, you know, that I have to keep working at. It doesn't mean that I've got this all figured out. You know, I just bring a particular lens to this that I hope is helpful, you know, that I hope will lead to some changes that are useful. And I know there are some people who are, uh, who uh, align with these ideas, I'm certainly not the first person who's had a lot of these ideas, but it's what I've become known for, for sure. 
Um, but like there's a, other trainers that are promoting some of this stuff, Work Schiller being one of them. He's gotten really big into some of these ideas and concepts and has completely changed how his training methods are now in order to focus more on relationship before horsemanship, which is his adaptation of con concept or connection before concepts, right? So, you know, he's, he's really taken this and running with it. And I, I really appreciate that. And he's not perfect either. None of us are. We're all just figuring this out. We're trying to do the best we can. And I, I say this to try to dispel any kind of guru culture, right? Because guru culture is often evidence of a trauma response, you know, like the blind following of leadership and the appeasement and the, the seeking of approval and the, the, the putting of, of somebody on a pedestal and the, like, that's all, that's all got its, 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 its early start somewhere else, you know? And so when I come out and say, hey, we're all just humans trying to figure this stuff out. You know, our models keep changing. We keep growing and learning. And, and that's, that's probably green, green flags, you know, is to find people who are constantly willing to grow and learn and change. I think that's probably, probably a safe place to start. Anyway. Well, I so appreciate, you know, this conversation because I, I think personally, I relate to so much of what you're saying. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That's why we can go at this speed because it's like, yeah, I've, I've been there, totally. done that, did that, did that. Yes. Felt that. <laughs> it's like, um, understand that, you know, and it's, um, and I think that's why, you know, when I saw your poster to go to kind of bring this back, you know, your poster, uh, with polyvagal theory and, and the, and the number one question is, am I safe? And that really yeah. is the number one question that I talk to people about with Surefoot is that, that if you don't answer that question, am I safe with a, with a yes, how can you have a conversation? If well, you and it's, yeah. But yeah. it's not even, am I safe? Because am I safe is a question that takes me into my head and goes, well, I don't see anybody coming at me with a machete. So, so therefore I am safe. But there's, so there's, there's the intellectual belief of safety, but then there's the felt sense of safety. Mm. Do you feel safe is a different question, right? Like, oh, am I safe objectively? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's no one in, there's no one coming at me in my basement here. And I, you know, do, am I safe? Yeah. Re relatively speaking, I'm safe. Do I feel safe? Well, that's a different question. I might feel safe, sure, but I might not. I might objectively think I'm safe, but what if I had that, like that, you know, that ventilation system that was really loud? I, I turned off my air conditioning. I have uh, an air conditioning, a central air in this house, and I didn't want it on for this call because one, it was going to be too loud and annoying. Two, I didn't want the vibrations to annoy all of our, all of our listeners and set off their nervous systems. You know, it's already a heavy topic. I don't want to add to the demand hands on your nervous system to have to process this information while also listening to this jarring noise, you know, like that's a lot of demand on a nervous system. And so that, but that, that's nuanced stuff, right? Like we don't think about that stuff. We're just good at tuning out and overriding. Well, some of us are good at tuning, tuning out and overriding. Right. And so, um, so, but feeling safe, do you feel safe is a different question. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so with my horse, the mounting block issue that we had, if I come back around, the mounting block issue was, okay, so now we've got the sphere of the mounting block in part mentally, I don't feel safe on a, I don't feel unsafe on a mounting block, but my nervous system has experienced a trauma at the mounting block. So mentally I can say to myself, I feel safe, or I think I'm safe. My body doesn't feel safe. Right. And the horse doesn't give a rat's ass, but what I'm thinking, the horse feels me, the horse feels how I'm feeling and how I'm showing up. So so what we ended up doing to resolve that problem, actually, it was rather remarkable. I had to do some work around my own fall from that day and do some of my own trauma processing separately from my horse. 
Uh, and then I had to do some of my own um, work approaching the mounting block and tracking and working through my own responses. And that was helpful to help deactivate some of what was still in my system related to the mounting block. Um, and then I did some behavior shaping with Brando. So the mounting block was associated with positive things. Behavior shaping isn't always what's gonna be what's gonna get there because we also know that you can do behavior shaping with an animal and that a fear response can get reinstated very quickly, yes. right? So we know this, right? Behaviorism has its limits, right? So there, we, we know that, re, I forget the word, there's a few different words, but the, the reinstatement of a previous feared response, a fear response can show up again, right? So, um, and so I was like, okay, so, but it was interesting because the combination of me working on my nervous system, my neuroception of safety, my unresolved trauma from the mounting block, that in combination with the clicker training with, with Brando, it was literally three sessions doing clicker training of behavior shaping of walking up to the mounting block and standing there and relaxing and getting some treats and finding relaxation at the mounting block. He it's that, that was 2018 and it has stuck. Yeah. He's not fear, afraid of the mounting block. It took three sessions after years of trying to get it by giving him a double bind with it's either the stick or the block, right? Like, and that double bind of it's one discomfort over another. And you got to pick your discomfort, like pick your poison horse. You're going to pick the stick or you're going to pick the mounting block. Wasn't getting me anywhere. Again, I'm not saying that to, to downplay or, uh, you know, um, malign negative reinforcement. I still use that with my horse. There's a time and place for negative reinforcement. It's a way that we learn. It's not wrong. It's not bad. It's just, it wasn't the right tool at the right time. Well, and and that I, was, I think that yeah. one of the things people don't realize is that we're doing these different reinforcements all the time in some, yeah. you know, whether totally. negative reinforcement or punishment, we're, we're using them because that is how we, that's part of how we learn. Well, and, yes. Yeah. And somebody said recently that there was, um, somebody had commented on my article about, cause like the article con connect, um, connection before concepts, like I said, was, has been making the rounds. It's been out since 2018, but somebody started sharing it recently and it's kind of made its way through social media again. Uh, and I talk about three different pressure release methods, right? One is you release the pressure when the horse gives you what you ask for. One is you release the pressure when they show signs of relaxation. And one is you show, you release the pressure when they tell you no, which is the one that throws people off because they go, oh, isn't that reinforcing the wrong thing? I'm like, no, it's helping the horse rec recognize that I see his discomfort and that he can trust me, right? And that we're gonna slow this down and, and do smaller thresholds because I'm overwhelming the horse, right? And so, um, and so I wrote this article and about these three different ways of doing pressure release. And it's not that they're wrong. It's just that sometimes we want to do the connection-based stuff first before we address the other stuff. This is in keeping with the humane hierarchy, address the antecedents, address the conditions, the relational environmental conditions first, before we go about training things out of the horse later, right? If you can address the issue by addressing the environmental or the relational context, then you've just saved yourself a whole bunch of extra training that you didn't need to do, right? The whole point is address these things first. And so the releasing of the pressure when the horse says no, especially in the beginning, as you're trying to navigate the dynamics of the relationship and feel safety and trust with each other so we can have neuroception of safety, that's probably a really good thing to do to start with. You wouldn't want to stay there, of course, right? There's going to be progression, but in the beginning, that can be really helpful. Um, and somebody had said, oh, I've misinterpreted um, pressure release around releasing pressure, um, with cat H. So construction, uh, constructional approach training for horses. 
uh, which is the one I was talking about where I talk about releasing pressure when the horse shows signs of relaxation. Um, and a person had made a comment recently on a post about this saying that I've interpreted it wrong and there's no pressure release involved in cat H and this is not how it goes. And, and somebody had commented it I didn't bother to reply, but somebody had commented in, re in re response saying, well, it's the interpretation of press pressure release that's in question here. You know, I can, not all pressure is negative, right? So I can walk towards you. That in my world is a stimulation. Any stimulation is ergo pressure, right? So like me walking towards you, Wendy, is a form of pressure. You might experience that as really being positive because we like each other and we, you know, and we get along well. Right. So I, I, so that might be pressure and then I might walk away from you and that's a release of the pressure of walking towards you. It doesn't mean that you experience that as pressure, but from a, from a language standpoint, it's a stimulation towards you and a, and a, and a removal of that stimulation. That to me is pressure release. Right. I, and maybe other people don't determine or call it that, but if you take sort of behavioral traditions aside and remove those and just look at what is going on from a, a basic dynamic standpoint, I'm walking towards you. I'm walking away from you. That is increasing pressure, releasing pressure. Right. And so, so I'm using the words in that way. That might not be how behaviorists use the terms, but that's, that's, I'm coming at it from a, a broader than behaviorism standpoint. So, um, because the person was like, well, that's not pressure release. But like you said, it's very subtle, right? So I watched a video once on the internet of somebody who said, oh, we don't do pressure release here because <laughs> of the negative connotations around negative reinforcement. Again, misunderstanding of what negative reinforcement actually means. And it's a common problem. And again, there's nothing wrong inherently with negative reinforcement, right? So this is, again, I'm, I need to state that very clearly. There's a lot of misperception. Um, and, but the, what this person was saying, well, we don't do pressure release here, but then this person in this video and it's on YouTube, I'm not going to say who it is because I, I'm not trying to call anyone out, but I'm just wanting to let people know that this is really common as a misperception. The person was like, I don't do pressure release. And then what do they do? They go up to the horse's shoulder, like bring their hand up to the shoulder, really lightly, really light contact. And then ask the horse to move away from a light amount of contact. And then they remove the contact and they said, oh, see, so they, the horse just followed my energy. And then I could pull the energy away because they followed my energy and did what I asked. I'm like, but that's pressure release. Like exactly. people don't get that. That's what it is too, you know? And it's, it's interesting for me because I go, but it's wording, it's language, it's connotation. Right. Well, and so, and, I mean, if, if you're not going to apply pressure release, then, then the horse should be out in the field by itself in the biggest field possible and and that's it but horses apply pressure release on each other they move the each other around right the, i mean the yeah. concept of moving into a space or moving away from a space in yes that is pressure release is pressure release it, that is pressure release pressure probably that people get hung up on but it's yeah. you know you're you're changing the environment in some way by you're increasing yeah exactly you're increasing a stimulation you're increasing something, right? Something is appearing that wasn't appearing before. And then you're removing the thing that was appearing, you know? And so, yeah. It's so important to have this discussion and talk about this because there is so much misinterpretation and misunderstanding. Yeah. And some of the words are really confusing. It took me forever to kind of figure out, yeah. you know, positive, negative, because I don't think that way. That was yeah. really confusing for me. Um, and sympathetic, parasympathetic. I understand it, but again, it's their words that you know learn what they mean. They don't mean innately what they mean. Yeah, 
<laughs> well, this is it. with negative and positive reinforcement as two of the four quadrants within learning theory, I mean, negative reinforcement, people often think it's negative or bad, right? Because of the word, the, just the valence of the term, the connotations are on the terms negative and positive. Positive reinforcement must be better because it's positive. No, it's additive and subtractive. You got to think about it in terms of that standpoint, and which I don't understand why the behavioral world hasn't adopted. And this is, I'm not the first person who said this. Other people have made this suggestion as well. Why can't we call this additive and subtractive reinforcement to remove the words negative and positive so that people aren't so confused? You know, additive reinforcement is you add in the thing that's desired as a reward for performing the behavior. Subtractive reinforcement is you remove the adversity thing. You remove the thing that's the pressure, or the thing that's not liked as much, right? And, and that's kind of where it is. And this is where that person was like, well, it's, it's not um, to, remove pre to remove the object in cat H when the horse shows signs of relaxation doesn't mean that the, the object was a negative adverse thing. And I'm like, yes, this is where I'm using the terms differently from classic behaviorism, right? The pressure release within behaviorism classically refers to negative reinforcement, the pulling away of something adverse, right? That is not wanted or that's viewed to be distasteful. I'm talking about a broader understanding understanding of the word pressure release, right? Pressure release is I increase something and I remove the thing. It has nothing to do with adverse or not, right? And so it's, 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 it could be experienced as adverse depending on the nervous system, but I'm talking specifically, right. I'm, I'm specifically talking about an action towards and an action away from increased pressure, release pressure. It is what it is, right? It's just a different interpretation of the language. And so um, I never had a chance to really speak to that issue because it was on one of the posts on social media recently. Somebody had called me out and said this was an inaccurate article, even though it's been making the rounds and everyone seems to really like it. But this one person was like, no, this is not how the words are used. I'm like, no, not in that world. You're right. The, in that world, in a strictly behaviorist standpoint, no, it, it's not used in that same way. I'm not coming from that standpoint. I'm looking at an overall pattern of a, approach retreat, increase, decrease, right? Increase pressure, release pressure, right? There's three ways that we do that. They're, they're called different things depending on your tradition. But if we look at the baseline pattern of what is playing out in each of these situations, there's something and then it's being removed, right? And so let's look at that as being the theme and let's look at that as being the pattern as opposed to nitpicking about connotation, right? right. I'm looking at a go back pattern to the here. example of the, of the mother with the baby, she was adding. Yeah. Yes, the, that's the right. expression, that's And then when it was removed, it was a really awful thing for that baby, right? Yeah. Again, that was a removal of, or an additive. And so, yeah, I'm glad you're clarifying the words because it, it is confusing for many people. And it's been twisted in many ways in, in how people want to interpret it. So having a broad definition, a, a simple broad definition, uh, um, then we can put things into, into context. Well, and so this is what we're hoping for with the Equiscience program that Steve Peters and I are creating and that we're rolling out pretty soon is that we're wanting to take a lot of these heady topics and really break them down so they're really accessible and understandable for folks because this stuff is confusing. This stuff is rife with conflict and politics and this person doesn't speak to this person and, you know, and different opinions and and there's facts and opinions and even the facts sometimes are not always sure because we're still studying and learning and and so it's messy and so if you've enjoyed our conversation today between Wendy and I like but found it really fast paced because Wendy and I are kind of like going at this full tilt 
you know, if you've kept up until now, congratulations. And, and, you know, welcome to the, the Keener club. And if this was too much for you, that's totally okay. Cause a lot of this stuff is really, you know, really heady and really overwhelming. And so, which is why we've created the Equiscience program. So we're trying to take a lot of this stuff and really slow it down and really break it down so that it's accessible for horse people, right? You don't have to be professional to take this training. Although certainly professionals want to take the training for their own knowledge, they're welcome to, but it's really meant to be geared towards a broader audience who might not be all that geeky or nerdy about some of this stuff who really want to just learn some of the stuff to make sense of it. So they're, they're more, they're more, they feel a little bit more comfortable, you know, with these topics because there is a lot of confusion. No, there is. So Sarah, um, for my audience, what is one thing that they can do with their horse to take any, you know, we've, we've talked about a lot of stuff, but what's one thing they can do to implement what we've been discussing today? Totally. So I would, I would suggest if we slow this right down again, um, if you come back into contact with yourself and the horse in the moment, really mindfully, all the stuff sheds away, right? All the headiness that we've talked about, what is the felt sense of safety for you? How do you know? Mm. How do you know when your horse feels safe? It's not a head thing, right? If you say, well, because I am, that's coming from your brain. That's right. Right. Your prefrontal cortex horse doesn't have a prefrontal cortex. They're not going to be able to answer that question for you. You have to feel into it. You have to sense it. It is a felt thing, right? And it's more than the absence of danger or threat. It feels like something, right? So when do you feel safe? What does that feel like in your body? And is that how you feel with your horse? Is that how your horse feels with you? Question, because that, I mean, I've been a riding instructor for over 30 years and I, I get these, uh, students and that's they're not feeling safe everything they've been told to do has put them in a position of danger but when they feel that safety it it's like a light switch and everything changes for them and so i think that that's a just a fabulous thing to have people do is it doesn't have to be on your horse it just when you're in a safe place what does that feel like and then is that what you feel like when you're with your horse correct and if not then there's something that we call overcoupling there right? Something has now gotten infiltrated into your relationship with your horse that makes you feel unsafe. And by extension, your horse feels potentially unsafe with you. That's the piece that might want to be looked at or healed, right? So that would be, that would be the starting place. Do you feel safe? What is that like? How do you know? Awesome. Yeah. Well, Sarah, I want to thank you so much for this conversation today. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, and I, I hope you'll come back and do some more webinars and maybe we can get you and Steven Peters together, which would, I think, just be mind blowing. Sure. We can talk about some of what is going to be in your course. So um, stay tuned and, um, and um, I will be knocking on your door again. <laughs> Sounds good, Wendy. <laughs> well, thank you everybody for joining us today. And just remember that you can find this and all the other webinars on the Surefoot Equine YouTube channel. Subscribe to the Murdoch Method email list and you'll find out about all of the upcoming webinars every Sunday when I send out that email so you can be sure to sign up. Thanks again, and everybody have a fabulous day. Bye. Bye. All right, so I will cut it there, but um, uh, I, I knew I wanted to talk to you. I've wanted to talk to you for over a year now, and it's so much fun. I just, you know, okay. uh, we've got, you know, lots of similarities and coming from different places, but totally. you know, right. so I, have, you, have you done anything with Surefoot at all? Do you know anything about Surefoot? 
I did. I haven't, I haven't ordered it. I've been so busy with trying to transition and move. And I, my, my mare belonged to my ex at the time. And, you know, it was just a bit of a free for all. So I've been curious about them. I just haven't gotten into them yet. And there's a lot of things I wanted to look into Masterson method, bought some of the materials, signed up and then couldn't take the course because of timing. So there's all these things that I want to do that I just so, but you're still find. in Canada, right? Yeah, I am. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. if you email me your your mailing address in Canada, what I can do is have my Canadian reseller send you a half physio pad just for you, just to get you started, just to play with. Um, yeah, yeah. And we have a lot of people standing on it, and it's changed that. Like, I had a woman who had a concussion and she had a headache for two weeks, and I put her on the half physio pad, and in a minute, her headache went away, and she nice. slept deeply twice that day. So, you know, it's it's a that one is kind of a really interesting pad and I just really like to send one to you. Um, cool. So send me your email address or sorry, your mailing address because cool. you're still there for a little while, right? I'm going to be here for a while. I've got my house on the market. I've got an offer on a place uh, closer to town. So I'm not so remote, but obviously that's only going to work out if I manage to sell this place. So regardless, you can send it to my PO box. I only have a PO box right now, so you can send it to the PO. Okay. Um, hmm. Great. And then um, I will save this webinar um, and then we'll do the other one live. And when I post them, or, or here's a question for you, Wendy, should we release this one? Well, I and then think we should actually release it because then you can say to people, Hey, by the way, we've got a live one coming up on this day. Yeah, I think we should, because this was, this was just fantastic. Um, okay. and internet is very stable. It, 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 well, it was today. It was today because the weather was good and I have no other demands on the signal. If the weather's shitty on, on the 29th, I can't control that. And that's where it's going to be, you know, if we, have, if we have to reschedule, we reschedule it, you yeah. know, not all the time because we've had thunderstorms and different, you know, blah, blah, blah. So there you okay. go. Then I will go ahead and release this because I just think that this is a great prelude into whatever we wind up talking about then, because you and I are going to continue our conversation. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. This awesome. stuff is great. So I will do that. Cool. Awesome. All right. Thanks. Hey, thanks, Wendy. Thanks for following me up. It was a lot of fun. I will. And we'll uh, let me know when it gets posted because then I can share it on my social media as well. Um, are, are we, we're, we're friends on Facebook, are we? I don't know, but I'll check. Because I was going to say that you can tag me in it as well. And that would be really useful. Okay. Um, Alex does the posting, but um, so I might have her send you a friend request. Alex. Okay. My sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Have, have Alex do that. And then that way we can tag me in it. Cause otherwise like, yeah, that, then yeah. it, it, no, it, it, it helps with it. Yeah, sure. Cool. All right. Cool. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Wendy. Bye. Bye.